All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, it's good to see everybody. It feels like uh, summer is one of those times where you can go three or four weeks without seeing people just because of travel schedules and holidays and things like that. So it's nice to be all in the same room with y'all. It really is. Uh, let me pray, and then I'll set out what we're doing today, review two weeks ago, and we'll jump in. Lord, we uh, thank you that you give us this space, this, um, not just this room and this church and the good people, spirit of joy, but also this time that we can uh, be together, to learn together, um, and be your body, you know, be uh, more than we are just by ourselves. So thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your kingdom that uh, grounds us and centers us in your love. And uh, we pray for your uh, peace to descend upon us now by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So two weeks ago, I wasn't here two weeks ago, but two weeks ago, uh, Ben Sternke, uh, he, estimable Ben Sternke, talked about the visions and practices of the table. Andrea. And so uh, this should look familiar if you were here. Um, Talked about our four main practices, welcoming listening, gospeling, and going. I left this up because you'll see our, our worship is structured on these practices, by the way. So it's really intentional. So welcoming, listening, gospeling, going. And then we say this often, uh, we exist to encounter, embody, and extend the radical hospitality of Jesus, or the love of Jesus, right? Encounter and worship. Or the presence. Or the presence, right? Yeah. yeah. Good. Embody and extend um, so that was a couple weeks ago. Uh, today we're going to just chat about worship and why, why we worship in the way that we do in um, helping, I think, helping give a framework and vision for the distinctiveness of our of Anglican worship and in particular of worship at the table. Right? Because we... We worship for we worship the way we do for a reason. Uh, a couple stories, and then so here's what's going to happen. I'm going I'm to lay out kind of the sort of the uh, the world we live in. Hey, Rockies, the world we live in, like worship worship wise, and then use that as a way of getting into how maybe what we do is distinguishable from that. So this past week, I was on a conference call. With um, actually, there's a there's a magazine out in the lobby by this organization. Um, it's a it's a large organization, Christian organization, billions and billions of dollars. It's a financial investment kind of Christian organization, and they've got a wing or an arm that particularly sort of helps um, churches start. And we were we're talking. We had this conference call with a seminary because uh, we're. Ben and I are trying to create a partnership training church planners and churches. And this person just stated, uh, like, it, like it was common knowledge or uh, irrefutable fact, everybody knows that if your church, if you want to plan a church and you want to survive, you need to start with a $250,000 budget. <laughs> He's like, research, statistics, everything backs that up. And so he was speaking sort of just ipso facto, like, this is just true. And most of the people in the room were like, <laughs> it was really awkward. Really awkward. 
Um, I have a friend uh, who works at a local church in the suburbs who uh, worked at a church that started like this with a $250,000 budget. By the way, we don't have that much money. <laughs> uh, we're doomed. <laughs> um, uh, um, yes, I've gathered you all here to tell you we're closing. <laughs> We've made a terrible mistake. Now, a friend of ours, a friend of Ben ours, uh, just recently launched out of a church like this that started with probably closer to 100K, but um, they have sought to structure and order their worship in order to get as many people as quickly as possible into the church so that they can reach a level of sort of economic and relational sort of capacity so that they can become sustainable. And he's been in this church for about five or six years, and he's recently launched out to start something new. And we, we met for lunch a couple weeks ago, and he's got this deep, deep suspicion. I would almost call it like a spiritual allergy to a Sunday morning worship service. Yeah. Now, he's coming out of an environment much different than ours. He's coming out of an environment where they had a... 815, 930, 1045, 12, and like a 115 worship time. Right? Right? I don't know if you guys need a nap. I need a nap. Just talk about it. So he's coming out of that. But like one of the challenges I gave him was, hey, um, there's a different way of seeing Sunday worship than maybe what you've experienced and what you're used to. And I bring up those two stories just to say kind of we live in the land of – How many worship services can we cram into a Sunday morning slash Saturday night slash even in our neighborhood, we get flyers about, it's called the early weekend service. I think it's on Thursday night, right, Andy? Thursday night. Thursday early weekend service because if, if, you you know, if you want your weekend, you don't want Jesus to intrude on it, you can come Thursday. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so uh, I bring up those stories just to say because like, I feel like that's sort of common, like – not to disparage it and not to, not to caricature it, but just to say, like, that's sort of the water we swim in. Sort of the, the, the imagination we have for worship and how many of us maybe even grew up in it. So let me, let me just say this. We did not start our church with a worship service. Most of you, many of you know this. We started uh, having dinner together. And we started... Uh, praying and talking. Probably did that for a year, right? And um, praying and talking and dreaming about well, who we could be as a church. Uh, and, you know, three-quarters of those people left, decided they didn't, they weren't really down for that. <laughs> Very effective. <laughs> and, then, and then we started doing discipleship for another year. So our DNA groups, that some of you have been even messaging me about, hey, when are we starting those DNA groups? Uh, hello, fastholds. Good morning. Come on in. There's a chair here by Ben. And... So you spent another... Ooh, yes. Um, ben, do I give this to you? Uh, yeah. Sure, I'll tell you right I'm, now. I'll put it... <laughs> Hang on. I'll, I'll put it in my slot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you Store it behind your ear. Oh, yeah. I'll swing him over there. Come on, Iggy. Week. So last week we thought we wouldn't have church, we wouldn't have a worship gathering because so many people were gone. And we had like 35 people 
at, like here, it was crazy. We had a huge number of people here. And um, someone who's been here like twice named Ariel uh, held Iggy the entire worship service. And I was, I told her afterwards, I'm like, you're holding babies on your second week. Like, you're here. You can't really go anywhere. Like, that's sort of you're in. Um, so uh, a year of discipleship. And then we started worshiping together regularly a year ago, the beginning of Lent. So some of you were there at I Hope, you know, the little strip mall, uh, worship space, uh, and then the food pantry, and now here. So uh, what is worship then at the table? Well, um, just, just to be sort of uh, quick, like the quick and dirty, is it's not, it's not a lecture time. Right? So we don't gather to hear Matt or Ben or, you know, even Becky like give some incredible speech and everything leads up to the speech and then everything sort of comes away from the speech but the speech is the thing that I'm here for and if I can't make it to church I can catch the speech later online and get church that's not worship here worship isn't a Jesus themed entertainment where we have you know, a banner and uh, slogans and a, a series and all kinds of uh, accoutrements around that. It's also not a Holy Spirit pep rally where we come to dance and sing and sing and shout um, um, and make the mountains tremble. Like, there's, there's places for that, but that worship isn't primarily, uh, that's not really what we're doing here. So worship is this. Worship is an encounter with the presence of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's this. It's right here. It's, it's a meeting. It's a meeting place. So a few assumptions then we make about worship is that God is already present and at work when we gather. Um, there's a story in... I believe it's First Kings, maybe Second Kings, of uh, the showdown between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. You guys know the story, right? And and it's basically Elijah's taunting them. He's throwing massive shade at the prophets of Baal. Uh, they're like cutting themselves and dancing, trying to get Baal to come down and do something. And Elijah's like, oh, what happened? Anything happened? No, no. Oh, interesting. Maybe you should get some more people and do this. You know, like, he's totally like throwing shade on them. Um, and, and friends, we would never, I mean, we don't worship Baal, but oftentimes we, uh, we do things in worship, hoping God will show up. We don't cut ourselves. Uh, most of us. I mean, in worship. And we don't, there's not a whole lot of dancing, but like it's, it's almost like that. It's almost like, God, will you just, will you just pay attention? Will you just do something? Uh, but we, we assume that God's already present in at work. And so we stay away from icebreakers. You know, we don't need an icebreaker. We don't need to make anything happen. In fact, we need a break from making things happen and from things being done to us. Like, we need a break from us having to produce something and other people trying to, like, stimulate us. We need a break from all that. So our worship, uh, we'll talk about this in a second, but we're intentionally, 
What would it look like if we gathered and trust God, trusted God was present and at work already? That's one of the assumptions we make. The other assumption we make is that we don't show up ready or knowing how to worship. In fact, I'm rarely ready to worship. Right? I mean, even 20 minutes of Caleb all the way here doesn't get me ready to worship. <laughs> no, we assume... That was, that was a joke. Uh, a little Christian humor. Um, no, uh, we assume that we have to act like worship isn't something we can just flip a switch and do. And, and we have to learn what it means to worship. So... Um, there's this belief in our culture that something is more true or more authentic the more spontaneous and surprising it is. Right? Um, and there's all kinds of philosophical and sort of cultural reasons for that. I won't get into that. Um, kind of like, if I don't plan it, then it must be really good or true. You know, some of us grew up in charismatic traditions where the pinnacle of a worship service was... We don't even get to the sermon because we just sing the whole time. Or the pastor gets up and they're like, I was going to talk about this today, but God just gave me a word. And people are like, oh, get ready, girl. Like that's kind of the – because it's like, oh, you planned something, but now we're going to get something extemporaneous or spontaneous. And now we know we're getting the good stuff. Uh, But there's this – there's this deep, deep tradition, friends, um, in Scripture and in the church of – Basically exhibited in the apostles' question of Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray. These are, these are faithful Jews who grown up with prayers their whole life. They actually probably know more prayers and scripture. Like Peter probably know, knew more prayers and scripture when he met Jesus than all of us in this room combined. Like that's the amount of already in my head knowing how to pray... This is what I do. Here's the Psalms I recite when I go to Jerusalem. Like, they got them all in there. But he still comes to Jesus and says, teach me how to pray. The Psalms, 150-51 songs in in the Old Testament, are like, basically, they, they aren't just like, here's the greatest hits. They were taught as like this rubric, this training rubric of how to worship. How to worship. So, we trust that God's already present here. But we also trust we got to learn how to worship him. It's not something that we automatically know how to do. And something that just arises out of me extemporaneously may be good or it may not be good. Maybe faithful, may not be. Right? Three. So, that, so then God's present at work. We have to learn what's going on. Worship is primarily then about our, our formation. As we encounter God, we embody His presence in worship together. So we are being formed into Christ-likeness in worship. It's not about education, necessarily. It's not about elation. It's not about entertainment, right? It's not about escape. That's a big one. That's a big one in our culture. Escape. I come to church to forget about my worries. 
It's not about uh, expression, like, oh, I just got to find a way to like, be me and like, get this out. Like, like, it's not wrong to um, enjoy something, to be engaged. It's not wrong to come here as a refuge. It's not wrong to express ourselves. But we're just primarily about being formed and shaped as Jesus. We have to learn how to do that. So how does worship train us to do that? Well, uh, grab your booklet. I thought, instead of me talking about, um, if I could get a book or two, I thought instead of just talking about it abstractly, like we could just walk, I could just walk through, like what's in this booklet? And what's the, what's the logic behind it? What's the intentionality here behind it? There's two moves, two major moves in our worship friends. Um, the things that are at the center of our time, and it's, the word and the sacrament. So the way the presence of God is mediated to us is through the word and the sacrament. And then our, uh, our, our move with both of those is like a call and response. So there's revelation. This is who God is. And then there's response. I'll receive that. Um, it's a proclamation of participation. Right? So God speaks and addresses us and we respond. We respond. And let me just say this up front. This is how we're formed. If you're like me, and I know I am, like I'd rather just read about God, learn about God, cogitate, contemplate, and sort of figure it out up here. Right? But worship is an embodied experience. So there's a, there is a, uh, we'll count how many responses we have in this service. Because our formation isn't about necessarily like getting smarter. Our formation is about becoming more responsive to God and just saying yes to Him. Over and over and over. Becoming less guarded, less, less obstacled. Less resistant to God and more open-handed. All right. So, friends, this uh, this first page is our gathering. So we have a welcoming or gathering. We have a listening time in our service. We have a gospeling. We have a going, and it kind of follows that big structure. We'll just kind of look at this. So there's a call to worship. Um, at the beginning, and we typically start with silence. We try to give a vision for that so that we can participate in that. Oh, yeah. Participation. Participation. Yeah. Yeah, he has received. Um, but silence is, a, is, a, uh, is, is one of the ways we demonstrate that we trust God is present and at work is we just cease. We're just still. Can I say how, how that's working? It's not entirely clear uh, in the book, but how that works this, this morning. Sure, Ben. So, Wait, um, are you the liturgist this morning? Uh, for this part, I am. Okay. I'm going to just talk about that. Anyway. <laughs> uh, the, the call to worship, uh, the call to worship uh, is normally just spoken. Right? And then we spend some time in silence. 
but this morning uh, it's this song, so come away from Russian hurry. Um, so you'll notice the lyrics of the song are an invitation, right? To come away from Russian hurry to the stillness of God's peace. Um, but then you'll notice the second verse is more of a response. You see that in the lyrics? It says, we, in the pastors of God's mercy, we let down our souls. The third verse is another call. So uh, the way that we're going to do it this morning is, uh, I'm, I'm leading music this morning, so I'm going to sing that first verse. We're all going to sing the second verse. I'll sing the third verse, and then we'll spend some time in silence before we come to the opening. Yes. Yes. That makes sense? That's like the logic of how that song works and how it calls us into worship. Yes. Good, and that spe- like specifically then the songs at the beginning of our service aren't. We bring a sacrifice of praise before the Lord. You know what I mean? It's not like, hey God, we're going to do something here. And we'd love to recruit you into our time. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like there's a time to bring a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. To the Lord. Um, but that's, that's, that's after we receive some revelation. Does that make sense? There's like a spiritual logic at work in worship. Because there's a spiritual logic at work in our spirituality. Which is, um, we don't produce or create something to do for God. But rather we receive and submit and consent to His work and then respond to Him. Right? So it's really intentional. uh, And it's here in our welcoming. Um, Then we have this acclamation. Uh, where we, 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 we just say together uh, that God is blessed. Uh, and then we respond with uh, an invitation for God to have his way among us together. Any, any thoughts or questions about the welcoming part of our service? Maybe what is what is gonna what is helpful for you in that? What is difficult for you in that? How is it different or similar? How does it comport? Maybe with convictions you have, or how does it challenge you? I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I, I feel like I have been I have been part of worship uh, gatherings, worship services, whatever you call them, where where I did feel like a little vibe here right now is like. I gotta, I gotta be in a certain place that I know that I'm just not right now, and and, and if I'm not at that place, I either gotta, I either gotta per, uh, pretend like I'm gonna produce that uh, and and make myself sing these songs or whatever, um, or I just gotta be like this, like uh, this is lame. Why did I come? Why am I here? Yeah. Um, and, th- and this, uh, I receive this as an invitation to like to, to, to encounter God right here, right now, and wherever I'm at. And uh, yeah, so I there's something that I, there's a way that I've responded to, to this kind of worship. And I think it's liturgical worship that I haven't been able to respond um, for a long time in, in worship that wasn't liturgical. Right? Yeah. Can anyone else relate to that dynamic of um, you're brought into worship, but you're sort of there's there's this cultural expectation that you be in a place other than you are, right? 
Um, in, in my experience, it traditionally is you need to be much happier, much thankful, much more joyful than you really are. Right now. Here we go. That's my experience. Right? And, and I just want to say, like, there's nothing wrong. Like, if you are on cloud nine and you couldn't fit more joy into your, uh, yourselves than you have right now, God bless you. Like, that's great. Right? Um, but another, another part of God being always present at work is that he's always present at work right where we really are. Not where we think we should be or where everybody else is or where we used to be. Like, so as much as possible, Joel, and we probably need to get better at this, we want to develop a team that crafts liturgy here because we want to give space for the full range of human existence and experience. But like in Lent, like the call to worship is very much reflective in mourning and, and sad. We had a conversation with Becky Dunn about this on our podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. If you guys haven't listened to it, uh, it was powerful for you, right? It was really good. Easter, though, it's much more like Christ is risen, hallelujah, right? So it's more up, right? One of the reasons we follow the church calendar is because we don't want to miss one of those things. At the same time, um, the invitation isn't, hey, are, are you sad? Time to get happy right now. That's not the invitation. The invitation is, here's joy. Where are you at with joy? Will you meet God wherever you're at with this invitation to joy today? It's a big difference, right? And so, so some of us in Call to Worship, we're like, Thank you for joy. We're just listening all these great things. You know, in our mind, we're tiptoeing through the tombs of Jesus. And others of us are like, F you, joy. I haven't seen you in weeks. And like, honestly, both, both are faithful. Both are faithful because you're right where you really are in the presence of God. And we know that because we learn to worship through the Psalms. And there's psalmists that say, F you, joy. service where the response comes first. Yes. Before there's, we've ever heard the welcome the come from Jesus. And we haven't had the revelation and we're all working we're just like, okay, let's respond, let's respond. And the songs are all about that. There's not even been a, you know, a song read <laughs> like nothing. And we can't respond uh, until yeah. God invites us yeah. to, to do that. And maybe he speaks that word into our heart and then gives us that yeah, that's good. That, that, that relates to, like, uh, as we pick songs, like, I think there's a difference in posture between, come on, everybody, really mean this, you know? Like, I can't hear you! There's a difference between that and then, like, a, a song that's full of revelation about who God is that I can sing no matter how I feel, right? You know, there's, an, there's a different kind of invitation. And there's the, the invitation to formation as well, to say, okay, like this is what I do when I'm in this space. You know, I, I, whatever, I recall the deeds of the Lord or whatever. Not as the, the goal isn't for me to feel better. The goal is for me to learn what to do with my, learn what to do with the, the man that I feel, mm-hmm. to quote uh, Fred Rogers. But you know what I mean? Like learn how, what, like what do I do with it? 
um, you know, a worship train is to do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. So the welcoming then is trusting God's presence at work and a call to be with that God. That's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to do there. The second move is listening. Um, and so we, we send our kids out to listen to God. Um, and then we also then have a prayer time kind of orient ourselves to listen. And then we read four scriptures. And sometimes it goes on forever. Yeah? Lots of words are said. A couple things just about this. It's really intentional we don't project the words on a screen that are being read. Uh, it's really intentional we don't give everybody the address so you can find it in your Bible. I mean, I know that's the typical thing people do in churches. It's like, here's a pew Bible, bring your Bible from home, get your Bible on your phone, and if you don't have any of that, here's we're going to project it on the screen for you. We are, um, we want to receive visually, but we also want to receive orally. And there's something about having to still our minds and hearts and, and like, I don't get to control how fast Isaiah reads the scripture. He may go faster than I want him to or slower than I want him to. He may mispronounce a word that I would pronounce differently. But I have to submit my body to the reading of Scripture. Like I don't get a pause. I don't get a back up. I don't get to tune him out and just focus on the word that I like to focus on. You know what I'm saying? So like there's a, again, it's formation. Like I just so consent to Isaiah's reading. And Guys, it's really hard for me sometimes to listen. Really hard. To Isaiah specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a you know Old Testament, a psalm that's prayed responsibly, a New Testament, and then a gospel. Uh, we read four readings. They're from usually from the lectionary. This fall when we do our beginnings and endings series. Uh, they won't be from the lectionary. We'll pick four readings around whatever text we're proclaiming, preaching on. Um, <laughs> and um, just the, kind of the full kind of counsel. That typically, when the lectionary is being read, like especially today, listen, listen to the Old Testament reading in light of the gospel. Like, the people who pick the lectionary text, they're not doing it willy-nilly. It's a theological theme they're looking at. So sometimes when we pre preach, we don't draw it all together because we only have 20 minutes, or if you're me, 40. Like, there, <laughs> but, but there is a thread there. So that's part of what we're doing. We're listening. We're, we're submitting, our, submitting ourselves to the reading of the word. And then, and then someone from among us proclaims good news from that word. Right? So the good news then is a call about who God is and who we are because of who God is. And there's a, a way of giving ourselves over to that kingdom reality. And then we respond to that. Okay, so we're hearing the call and the reading and the proclamation. And then there's, you guys notice in our, in our, our sermon response typically isn't, Go and think about this more this week. Or here's three things to do. 
to activate what I've said or um, come and save again. <laughs> or whatever. There, there's typically like a, uh, like a, a response that's in your life. Like verbally right now I'm going to respond in a concrete, tangible way. Again, we want to become responsive, surrendered, consenting people. People who the gap between what we hear and what we act on gets narrowed in worship. So that we become people of integrity, really. Right? So we respond by our prayer time. We respond by... Uh, like corporate prayer time, right? praying for the world. We respond by confessing our faith together, saying the creed. Today we're saying an African creed. We're going to pray for and send Nancy out again. She's going to Africa this time, and you'll share a little bit about that hopefully today. Um, and so we're going to read a translation of is it the Apostles' Creed. Some translation. It's, it's a it's a creed created a recontextualized creed. Contextualized. Great. Um, so we we say the creed, and let me just say this about the creed. Um, it may seem kind of out of place here, uh, but the creed is essentially just the story, the story that uh, that the church has always confessed and consented to. And again, let me just say this too. I often will say the creed, and. And as I go line by line, like I have varying levels of conviction about it. Yeah. Right? And I have this, and I want to talk about this a bit because this is about response. I have varying levels of do I feel like this is true going on in me? Here's something that worship teaches us sometimes our feelings need to get saved. I have a choice, and I don't, want, I, don't, I don't mean this as black and white as I'm going to say it, but, but here's the choice. Um, the choice is I'm at the tyranny of my subjective perceptions and feelings, or I give myself over to a revealed tradition. The world I grew up in says, um, trust your heart, let it be your guide. And I, and I want to say... We need f- people fully open-hearted and engaged with their hearts. Too often the church has been a place where people kill their hearts. But like my heart needs to know how to feel, what to think, right? And so sometimes I pray the creed and I pray, you know, you just send it to the dead. Uh, and, uh, and I think, I don't know what that means. I don't know how to conceive of that. But I... I confess it to know it. I confess it. And the only way I'm ever going to explore this is from the inside of it. Rather than, rather than being sort of imprisoned by the tyranny of my subjective perception. Now, that's part of our response. What does that, what does that do for you? Can you relate to that? Do you have questions about that? Have you experienced that too? Where you have to say things in our service and you're like, I'm not sure this is right or I believe this or 
Yeah, where are you at with that?
where there have been people, thousands, millions of people, believing the same thing that are very different, but these are the things that we agree on, and these are what define us. That was part of the shift for me too, like realizing that I think a lot of our expectation that I can only say things that I deeply, personally are convinced of. Like realizing that comes out of a story about you know who humans are and, and what we what we are, you know, kind of an individualist, self-expressionist kind of story, and just realizing like oh I don't have to I don't have to come to a bunch of conclusions before I confess something. That there is a there is a sense in which I don't even need to know. In one sense, like I don't even need to know if you know, literally was she a virgin or not. I don't even I don't know. That sounds a little weird to say, but I don't think I need to know that. I think I confess it in solidarity with the church, and you know they they probably felt like it meant one thing, and we've got you know this scientific lens now we look at things. And, we probably think it's something else, but I, I think it's been helpful for me to sort of unprivilege my own perspective and my own time. See, as Lewis called it, chronological snobbery, to assume that we know better now. You know, they might, well, maybe do we? I don't know. You know we might not. They, may, they might know some things that our scientific knowledge is like, obscured from us. We might not realize there's more ways of knowing them. So that's been part of the helpful thing for me is, is rooting and grounding so that I'm not just, like you said, like just trying to express what I personally believe all the time. But just saying, well, I don't know what this means. But, yeah. This is the church I'm part of, so, you know, I confess. Yeah.
for me something that really create is because I don't know how I feel about it a lot of the times. So there's multiple things in there. I'm just like, I really don't know if I believe that's even true. I don't. Um, but I think there's something to the, like you guys said, like submitting to that. And I also, like for me, I'm comparing to somebody I know who I struggle a lot with different things I've been taught or grew up with. Um, and somebody else I know has just like dropped it all and is like slowly picking it back up. And I, I'm like, I don't want to do that either. And so I would rather live with this tension of I'm confessing these things. I don't know how I feel about them, but that feels like a better tension than rejecting everything and picking up snippets just here and there and making my own thing. Yes. Yes. So that's, um, when I hear you say that, I connect it to like what Joel said, I connect it to what you said, Gabrielle. Maybe this is just me turning what you're saying into something I'm thinking. I'm pretty good at that. But <laughs> I'm only good at a few things, and one of them is, you know, turning what you're saying into something I'm thinking. Um, but I, we've talked about this before, but, uh, and we're and I, think I hear other people like brushing up against it, like like it sounds like most of us have this latent or implicit imagination for the creed is a thing that you just have to agree with, and you have to be certain about it, and the way you say it, the way you say it faithfully is like dogmatically. Right. Right? Like, I'm certain about, listen up, I'm going to tell you all the things I'm certain about. Mm-hmm. Like that, that kind of thing. Um, and what's, we're in a cultural moment where um, the way people make sense and meaning of the world is shifting. From facts to relationships. From certitudes to submission or consent. Um, From like um, empirical data to story. There's there's a shift taking place. And it's really a metaphysical shift. It's how people make sense of their world. Um, And I'll just say this, like Hollywood and Fifth Avenue and Wall Street and Capitol Hill, they all understand this perfectly. We live in a post-truth culture. It literally doesn't matter what some politicians say. They can, even if it's on film, they can two minutes later say, that's fake news. And because fake news has a story, there's a story attached to that. Right? Because they're invoking a story, people don't really care about the data and the facts. They just care, you've, you've named this story that makes me angry or afraid or like feel righteous. And so, yeah, you're right. This, is, this happens. Like over and over and over. In many ways. So we're living in a new, in a new era. And what, and what we're kind of talking about with the creed is there's a different relationship we can have to our questions and doubts than previous. I don't know if that's helpful. All right, let's keep moving. (laughs) Um, 
All the weight in our worship isn't placed on the, on the message, on the sermon. That's typically kind of in our traditions we come from, where all the weight is placed. Now, some charismatic churches, it's the music. Uh, most churches, it's the lectern, right, the pulpit. Uh, but because we do word and sacrament, like, really everything is moving towards the table. And at the table, we re-proclaim the good news. So it's not only a response to the good news. So you'll hear, you'll hear us move from the time of proclamation to the table when you've heard it proclaimed this. And now we respond by coming to the table. So we tie sort of the sacrament in with the good news reality we've just proclaimed. So there's confession of sin. There's the extension of peace. There's the doxology. And then there's the prayers around the table. Uh, these are all responses to the good news that have been proclaimed. And then we participate in the call and response. Like the passing of the peace is a call and response. It's an actual, hey, peace be with you, awesome with you, that kind of thing. And then the table is a participation in this thing that we're encountering, the presence of God. Uh, again, this is different, friends, because um, what makes communion good like, isn't how bad you feel for how rotten you are. Or the rush of dopamine you get when you experience forgiveness. Those things aren't wrong or bad. I'm just saying, like, there's something happening that you can participate in, but it's greater and other than you. So one of the reasons why we, like, focus on a bunch, like, receive this, because this is a posture of, I don't, I'm not in control of this. This is something just being given to me. It doesn't matter, like, it honestly doesn't matter how I feel about it, or whether I want it, or, like, I want it 56%, and I don't want it 28%, and the other 13% is just hungry. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> like it's just like, I believe, help my unbelief. Like, it's a posture of poverty and need. Right? Uh, and that's really, all that matters is, like, I'll consent to being fed here by Jesus. Um, and, then, and then, out of communion... We have, like, thanksgiving, praise, petition, music. And we've begun to incorporate prayer. Actual prayer for healing. So, um, Nancy and, and Josie and Becky and Sean and others have been talking about how do we incorporate, um, like, responding to the good news with prayers for healing and, like, personal deep personal so I know communion is different for a lot of us. Like, I mean, I grew up, I grew up in a Catholic church. We did it every week, but I had no idea what was going on. Then I kind of came into a Protestant tradition where we did it once a month because we didn't want to cheapen. We don't want to cheapen the experience. We do it less. Um, I got in trouble when I asked, like, why don't we just preach once a month? <laughs> I feel like it's cheapening. <laughs> they didn't like that. <laughs> uh, uh, and then, and then, like, I had to rediscover, I had to rediscover the Lord's Supper. I really had to, like, learn how to, 
and like how to do it, like how to how to do it, and not make it like a mental, like a mental, like turning it into an edible flannel graph where I'm just like, oh yeah, let me think about all this exactly right. Here's how the atonement works. <laughs> like that's that's my bent. That's what I do without thinking or trying. Um, so the Lord's Supper is really the mountaintop for us. It's a it's a call to the life, death, and resurrection, and a response to that by becoming incorporated into that, participating in that, becoming one with Jesus. Um, thoughts about that? <laughs> is that new for you? that hard for you? Some of you are, some of, I've heard from some of us, I'm only here because you do the Eucharist. I don't really care about anything else. Like, there's some people like that. I just need a place that gives me the Eucharist every week. Some people are like, what are we doing the Eucharist for? Can't we just do discipleship and have a great sermon? Like, like people are all over. I'm just curious, kind of, what, what stirs for you in that? You know, it was like, I think according to the discipline, you had to do it so many times a year. And so it was like we need a quota, basically. Um, and it was also just, it always talked about, like, this, like, represents the body of Christ. And it was always very tied to sense. And, like, so there's, there's this heaviness to it. But I never felt like, it never meant a lot to me. Like, I participated in it. Do it. I never felt, um, like, over here. Every time I'm like, I'm going to feel good what I've done and take this, and it's going to make me feel better. Yep. Um, yep. Um, yes. But I also wasn't comfortable with some other extremes. Like, not for an up Catholic, that's so different. So I really appreciate it. one, I appreciate you not going to do it. And I really appreciate this mysticism to it. Or something like, we don't know what happens. We believe that there's something special here. And we're just submitting to that. That's so much more freeing. Than how I perceive a tradition I grew up with. Yeah. And I don't know if they're honestly, like, I've never studied. Um, I was Wesleyan. It's funny, and I think of memberships, and because I was so into Wesleyan family, when I became a member, they didn't even take classes, they just assumed I knew everything. You don't have to go through any classes. Like, here, you know, yeah. it's like we're going through this together yeah. and learning things. Like, I didn't have to do that in my tradition because they assumed. Since I became, I became generations of the Westland, I just knew things. You must have just absorbed it. Yes. So I actually don't know, like, written doctrinally what their views on them are. I just know how it's perceived in a church I grew up in. Sure, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I feel like most of my experience has never, and until I went to Bible school, it was never talked about why we do this or what the, this is doing. It's just we're just doing this. I mean, church I grew up in, communion was always available three weeks after the
dimension. It's huge. It's probably something we need to size more. Um, just as somebody who serves, I'm going to be serving communion this week. I, like looking you in the eye and telling you this is Christ's body um, broken for you. Like if there's if there's any or unreconciled things between us, like like that's um, it's blasphemous. This is what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians um, when he when he talks about like don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. He's not saying, make sure you remember all the times you were a jerk this week. And if you don't remember all of them and you come to the table, you're going to die. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, like in the Corinthian church, unreconciled relationships between rich and poor people. He's talking about, get your gasps ready. He's talking about social justice and how it relates to the Eucharist. That there is a communion here. And if you're, if you're hurting each other, if you're not reconciled, you're drinking and eating and drinking judgment on yourself. There's an ec- it's an economic social justice that Paul said. There's this economic social injustice happening. And Paul's saying, you are going to kill yourself if you keep doing this. I think even like thinking about the passage, like you know, I grew up very much like realizing, like thinking, like okay, like you better not have any unconfessed sins yeah, before right, that you right. take this communion thing, or else like you're drinking death to yourself. But like realizing that, <laughs> realizing that not only was it like an issue of rich versus poor, but it was even like the way that they were taking the Eucharist was a symbol of who was rich and who was poor in that passage, because the rich didn't have to work essentially. They get there, they eat the Eucharist, there'd be none left for the poor people. And then, like, so the Eucharist was like a division, like a means of dividing the richer and the poor. Yes. The yes. Maybe you realize, like, oh, it's not just about, like, you know, this is like some judgment I'm drinking and I better be, like, all, yes. like, set up before God before I do this. I think that was a big part. That's huge, I say. It became an emblem of oppression. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, like, but that was never really talked about in my church, so. No, I mean, but honestly, I'm just confessing to you guys. Like, I know this, Ben knows this, but um, integrating this into our liturgy and our participation in the Eucharist, I feel like we're just beginning to learn how to do that. Um, regarding Eucharist, um, so so we, you know, we we've been participating with the table for you know quite a while. And, uh, it's weird because I, you know, me personally, I was one of the people um, before coming to the table where I was kind of like checked out the church, you know, um, you know, for various reasons. And what was interesting is uh, this this past Sunday we were at a, a, a local, if you want to call it, mega church or whatever, uh, in Evansville, and uh, and so you had. Um, you could sense these pinnacle moments, I guess, or uh, manufactured kind of moments uh, with with song, um, and then you had uh, the pastor get up there um, and do you know do the sermon, and it was prayer, and then it was done, like that whole service was done, and I turned to Carmen, I was like, 
did he just drop the mic and walk? Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And, and in me, I was just like, wait a minute, like, where's the, uh, where's the community participation in something? Like, not, and I'm not even talking about Eucharist. I'm yeah, just talking response, about, response. where do we get to do something together? Right. Like, I felt kind of like, we're just singing together. Yeah. <laughs> there was no song. There was no song. It was, he got down on right. one knee, prayed, and then, yeah. oh, yeah. you know. Um, no communal response. Yeah, and, and, and that's fine. Like, that's that's just where that church is, and, you know, and we, we don't talk about it. Uh, <laughs> especially with my parents. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there was, uh, you know, it's uh, like, it was weird. I, I had gone from the reason why I talked about like a little bit, just gave you a little snippet before coming to the table, um, to, to now is because I was like, wait, something's missing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm going to be in. I want to check in. Like, I want to yeah, be okay. checked out. I wanna, like, where's the in part? Where's the, where's the thing we do together as a church? Even though I don't understand a lot of the liturgical and Eucharist mystical, whatever things you guys are talking about. I've heard with those a lot, but like I still <laughs> felt like there was something significant that was uh, missing together as a bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I love, um, I grew up, yeah, in a different um, church, and um, you know, communion was once a quarter, and the pastor was super special. Super special. <laughs> and it was so special, the pastor would say, well, if you have any, you know, unconfessed sin in your life, um, just refrain from taking communion today. Oh, wow. So, you, you know, I mean, I'm sure it was a teenager. I'm like, oh. <laughs> 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 yeah, okay, so, you know, you could go for years. <laughs> I could go for years. Anyway, um, you know, just, it, it just made it, all about me, yeah. and it wasn't about what Christ, God yes. had done in Christ for me yes. in the Eucharist. So when I was first, I, first time I ever went was down at the Institute for Worship Studies, and they had held it, had the convocation, so the opening service was a Eucharist service in an in a Episcopal church, so it was high church, pomp and circumstance, and I was just in awe, but the most meaningful thing was this confession of sin and the absolution of sin passing of the peace as we led into the table. So it's this, we don't just go to the table, there's preparation of our hearts. And I think this confession of sin too is the same as maybe the creed is like, I may not believe all that, I may not really feel truly sorry or humbly repent, but we say it in faith. And then this, I mean I was in tears the whole time. And it, um, and then going forward, because in my tradition it was like, Here, this is all about me, right? So it's sitting in my little seat and taking the news that comes by, and it's you and Jesus, and um, being a part of the community as we come forward together. Just, I mean, I like I said, I mean, I can read through almost any Eucharistic service because it has so much meaning. Um, because it's not about me; it's about Jesus. And, even, even something as small as receiving with this posture, right? This this sacrament, this means of grace, and like even beginning to kind of think about what that really means. That because I've been doing this my whole life, and but I've never thought of it as this is this is a means of grace that I receive, you know. 
it, it's been it's been a big deal for me. And I, you know, I never would have thought that something small would cause me to read, see, see something, you know, in a very different yes. way. This is a small thing too. I'm a really aesthetic person, so the fact that we get like nice bread. is a closed table. Meaning, Eucharist is for baptized believers. Um, that is in deep tension with how I see the table. Um, I, 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 we have an altar call every week. And it's the Eucharist. And so, I, I don't presume I see the Eucharist as medicine, not as a metal. It's not a gold star. It's tonic. Uh, it, Christ's work on the cross is medicinal for our sick, diseased souls, bodies. And so we have we have this. Hey. Um, like, come to the table no matter where you're at. Come. Come and receive. But in our booklet, we have, uh, if, if uh, you're, if, you know, Eucharist is for baptized believers, if you are abstaining today, come forward and receive a blessing. Right? And so, like, like Jordan, you come forward and you receive a blessing. I, I pray for you. That's one of the highlights of my week. I'm going to get a for you, brother. Oh, man. But we've had, I've had conversations with people who were like, now what is this about not having uh, communion for people who are baptized? And people are like really angry with us about it. Well, you know, in a polite way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can't like just blast people. Like, you know, they're, they're actually hurt, but they want to own how much they're hurt. So they kind of ask questions about it, and they, and they want you to just eat it. It's kind of the weird emotional dance we do in 21st century America. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I feel like I'm like, I'm like conflicted about it. Um, and there's other Anglican churches that are trying to navigate this as well. Like, like Jesus ate and drank with, with sinners. And like, he served communion to Peter on a beach after he had denied him three times. Like, there's all kinds of, like, like in the feeding of Peter was part of, was part of his reconciliation to Peter. 
So I don't know how that works out, guys. Yeah. And I think it's I think it's in process for us. And um, I just wanted to put that out there because it's part of like I, I want anybody who wants to feed on Jesus to come feed on Jesus. Like come receive the grace here. I don't care, and I don't really care. No. And again, like I know baptism is. I mean, we believe in baptism. So if you're not baptized, what's keeping you from Like, if you want to take the Eucharist, but you're not baptized, let's get you baptized. Like, that's part of it. Like, what are you doing? Come on. <laughs> like, jump in. Um, but also, too, I'm not the person who gets to adjudicate souls. Like, it's not my job. Uh, and so my, like, standing, standing, okay, this is the last thing I want to say. Standing before the judgment seat of Christ, if he's like, you did all right, except you were too merciful with the Eucharist. Like, yeah. I'm going to be like, okay. <laughs> like, honestly, if that's, if that's the gripe, like, you fed these three people the Eucharist and you probably shouldn't have. I'm going to be like, okay, what is that? How much, how much fire is it going to take? <laughs> I'm okay with being too merciful. I'm not okay with being, I'm not okay with being, uh, I'm not okay with keeping people away. I'm not okay with, with telling the kids, this is an important person, you need to go somewhere else. Like, yeah. that's not the heart I want. I want, I, want the, I want the dishonorable, least powerful people who have no idea about an orthodox theology. Like, I want the Samaritan woman and the kids and the gathering demoniac and the centurion soldier, I want them all to receive from Jesus. All right, my rant's over. But I just want you guys to know, that's a place of, I mean, right, when you say... Like, we're conflicted on how to handle that. So the tension is because we're under this Anglican communion, this is the way we do it? Because, or? yes, because be, I think our official polity is Eucharist is for baptized believers. Yeah. yeah, and I think, just to add one thing to that, like, part of the reason it's a tension, I think, is the way that we have come to see culturally what baptism signifies. You know what I mean? Like, it does end up feeling like, oh, this is for the insiders, this is for the club, that kind of thing. When, when I, I think there's a different way of looking at it that would allow for, come on, right? I, I think what it was designed to do was to say, don't just treat this as a little, like, pick-me-up yeah. that you can just do whenever you want, but, like, be part of the family. Yeah. If you can come to the family meal, like, why aren't you part of the family? Yes. You know, like... If you're going to come to Thanksgiving, like you bring a dish to share, and you don't swear to everybody around the table, I mean, like, I don't know. unless your uncle Mark, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> that's a rule in our house. That yeah. dirty lunch. <laughs> so I think it's a way of saying, like, if you want to come and receive grace from Jesus, then like, what's keeping you from being baptized? You know, be part of the family. This is this isn't an individualistic thing. This is a family. Thing. Yeah. I think that's part of it, but that's part of the part of why we feel the tension. We want to honor that tradition, but we also know how it comes across. And so there's what it communicates. Yeah, so it's hard to know how to communicate. Well, that is a helpful. Yeah. We could, and then going is a benediction. We bless you. We send you out. You receive that, yeah. like physically. Put your hands out. Receive this and go. Go, go do the things we've practiced here. Yeah. Calling other people to respond. And that's that's where that encounter embody extend. That's where that's the connection there. It's like in the encounter we're sent out to embody and extend. To be the body of Christ. We receive the body of Christ in sacrament and we become
become the body of Christ as the church. All right. Um, next week, we're talking about discipleship, DNA groups. How do we do that? And in our practices, in our, we talked about mutual submission, communal discernment two weeks ago. Like, what does it look like to lead and to, to live and love differently, distinctly, as Christians? So next week, we'll talk about discipleship. Ben or I will lead that. Um, and if you have questions or thoughts about this class today or our worship, we always want to hear them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a lot of freedom from our bishop about how to craft our liturgy. So we're not handed we're not handed something and said do this and don't uh, derivate from it. But like we we have lots of freedom. So um, that's a communal thing. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, go uh, rescue Sharon. <laughs> Uh, Lord, we love you, and we love that um, we learn how to worship. Even this morning, we'll learn how to worship. And so, God, can we have the courage to not produce or manufacture anything personally or corporately, but simply receive you, to receive your, uh, your presence, and to, to have the courage to be right where we're at with that. Maybe that uh, terrifies us or comforts us or discomforts us, however that is, Lord. Can we have the grace to simply be present to you and to ourselves and to each other today? Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. We ask and we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.